Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I wonder how many of you are fans of crime movies, detective movies. We were talking to uh, the Hutchinsons, Jim and Ann, who are in England now, but we talked to them right before they left about their travel itinerary. I thought this was very telling. Uh, Jim was explaining that they had planned a side trip, which I think they ultimately gave up on, to the city of Hastings. Not because they were interested in the Battle of Hastings in 1066 and all that, but because Hastings is where Foyle's War is set. This is where the detective Foyle, one of the greatest modern detectives in uh, recent memory, who I absolutely love, is set. And, and he asked the question, do you watch Foyle's War? And I'm like, just hearing you say it makes me want to go watch it again. <laughs> of course, I love it. And there was this immediate uh, spark between us. It's not the first time I've communed with other people around the subject of murder, but, uh, <laughs> but it happens all the time. It's interesting how, you know, what you might have thought of as a really kind of odd thing to uh, be interested in is, is mainstream entertainment now. We all watch this stuff and uh, all the various detectives solving all the various crimes so that even if you're not that interested, usually you can figure out who the murderer is by the end of the episode because we're all so adept at uh, these kind of stories. But if you love crime dramas, if you love detective stories, if you love uh, movies like that, you may not realize it, but you owe a great debt to a German filmmaker named Fritz Lang. Now, Fritz Lang is probably most famous for a silent film that he made called Metropolis. It's the one with the, the robots and stuff like that. But, but my favorite Fritz Lang movie is actually one he made a little bit after that, once you were able to talk in the movies, and it's called M, the, just the letter M. If you've seen it, there is an indelible image from the movie. It's of the actor Peter Lorre, who later would become famous in a lot of American uh, film noir. You know, he was always the guy who was kind of the lugubrious villain, uh, kind of a, uh, I don't know, weaselly villain playing against Humphrey Bogart or something like that. But before that, in Germany, he was quite a popular uh, actor, and he was cast as a murderer in this film. So the iconic scene is actually Peter Lorre's scene from behind, kind of like this, hunched over, and on his black coat, the letter M in chalk is inscribed. It's, it's a mark that's been placed on him that marks him out as a murderer. He plays a not just a murderer, but a, a really particular kind of depraved murderer, a child murderer, a compulsive murderer. And what's interesting about this film is it's really the, the first police procedural where you get to follow along with the German police as they attempt to capture this, this murderer. M stands for murderer, but it could just as easily stand for monster. Through the first half of the film, you barely glimpse him. You see his shadows. You see him from behind or, or maybe in, in a slight profile. He's this, this ominous other 
that you see at work in the streets of Berlin doing evil, and, and you root for the, the forces of law and order, the police, the detectives, as they go about their business trying to catch him. And Fritz Lang gives us a really good picture of what it would have looked like in the 1930s uh, to do police work. So you get the kind of stuff that's now become familiar to us, detectives inspecting a crime scene, looking for clues and broken glass and little details, things like that, interpreting the scene. But you also get something else that is now familiar to us. The police, for all of their abilities, they can't actually catch the murderer, so someone else steps in, the criminal underworld. The criminal underworld of Berlin is highly organized, and they decide they cannot put up with this monster uh, terrorizing children on the streets, so they conduct their own investigation. And the two run in parallel. You see the police meet around a conference table to discuss strategy. Then you see the criminals meet around a conference table to discuss strategy. A little bit rougher, but there's an order to it as well. Because it turns out that both the police and the criminals believe in a kind of law. They have a, a moral framework and according to that law, this murderer is beyond the bounds, outside the pale. So you might think the police are after him and the criminals are rooting for him, but it's not like that at all. The criminals are just as determined to bring him to justice as the police are. A blind peddler recognizes him on the streets from a song that he whistles and, and uses the chalk to mark him so that the criminals can find him. He discovers that he's marked. He runs away. And in the suspenseful scene, the criminals overcome him, and they drag him down into this, this shadowy chamber where they put him on trial. They don't just murder him. They actually subject him to a judicial process that the criminal overlords oversee. And when they put him on trial, something happens that changes the way you experience the movie. Something unusual, unexpected, very bizarre that we're not going to talk about right now. But we'll come back to it. First, we need to go to Paul. Because Paul is interested in law as well. And the relationship of sinners to law. Right? We've been talking since Romans 6 about the, the relationship of the unbelieving sinner to God's law, and also the relationship of the believing sinner to God's law as well. What does the law mean to us? That's what we've been looking at. Now, I admit, we're going little by little through these chapters. Right? We're just covering a little bit. And as a result of that, from week to week, we're kind of talking about the same thing over and over again, just, just slight variations. There's a logic to this, I think. It's a little bit like the logic of armor. If you think about what makes armor protective, it's actually the overlapping of the plates, right? If you had a, a breastplate, no matter how strong it was, if it had exposed chinks around the sides, you would be vulnerable. But if there are other plates that overlap, everything comes together. And that's the way this text works for us. Every week, little by little, we get a little bit more about the meaning of what it means to be freed from sin, what it means to no longer be under the law, 
And there is repetition in what we're looking at, but that repetition serves to, to close the gaps. So that as we work through the text, we have a good understanding of what Paul is saying. Now, in our text, you'll see that Paul introduces a, a new perspective on things. He's told us that we're no longer under the law. We've been freed from the law, that we are, as he said last time, we're dead to the law. The law has no claim over us the way it once did. The analogy that he used had to do with a woman whose husband had died. She's now free from that husband. And we, in the same way, are free from the law. But now Paul is going to introduce a subjective perspective. He's going to start talking in the first person singular. I, I. And we're going to see that and and have to think a little bit about what that means. By speaking of himself subjectively in this way, what Paul is doing is bringing us into the psychological aspect of our relationship to the law, specifically the experience of conviction of sin. Conviction of sin. So just so you have this clear in your mind, in our text, there are really three shifts that are going to be made. Like the first point that Paul wants to make is that the law is not sin. The law is not bad. It is not the equivalent of sin. But the law does reveal knowledge of sin. There is a connection between knowing the law and knowing your sin. And that knowledge of sin finally reveals our need for Christ. The law is not sin, but the law reveals knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin reveals our need for Christ. Now let's look at our text, starting in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Because Paul has already told us that we're free from sin and that we've been released from the law to live this new life in the Spirit, you can understand why there would be an association between law and sin. Because Paul's drawn this dividing line, and the new life is over here, and sin is over there, and so is law. He's placing law in the same geography as sin. So a natural conclusion would be (laughs) the law is bad. The law is sinful. And so that's what he engages with. That's the question that he engages with. Is the law the equivalent of sin? And he says, no, by no means. Again, every time he asks one of these rhetorical questions, he always 
immediately answers it with this by no means. Uh, as the King James would say, God forbid. Don't be stupid, basically. Of course not. Of course not. The forcefulness of the repudiation always implies that, that the truth is antithetical to the assumption that you're making. That the law is not only not sin, but so far from sin that it's a ridiculous mistake to have made. So he repudiates that. And then at the end of our text in verse 12, he comes back to that point and actually makes the positive statement. The law is not sin. In verse 12, he says the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It couldn't be more good. The law is the opposite of sin, which makes sense when you consider what the law is. We've been talking a lot about the law, but we haven't really paused to consider what the law actually is. The law is not just a set of arbitrary rules that God came up with because he was concerned people might have fun. He was looking around at all of the good things he had made and thinking to himself, what should I forbid? What are the things people would like the most and how can I, you know, make them wrong? No, there's a positive logic to the law. That positive logic is that in revealing the law, God is revealing himself. He's revealing his holy character, his goodness. He's showing us his goodness in the law, sometimes through uh, negations, by telling us what not to do sometimes through affirmations by telling us what we ought to do. And all of these things in one way or another, some of them very clear, some of them not as clear to us. In all of these things, God is revealing his holiness. So not only can the law not be sin, but by definition, it's, it's as far away from sin as you can get. Because what the law of God reflects is what it looks like to be perfect holy, righteous. And yet, to the imperfect and the unholy and the unrighteous, the law looks very different. In our eyes, in our experience, the law doesn't function as a a, a revelation of God's holy character so much as it brings us under condemnation. Earlier in chapter 7, when Paul talked about being released from the law and he used that analogy of the widow whose husband has died, you may not have noticed, but Paul was very careful not to apply the analogy too literally. He did not say that just as the woman whose husband died is now free to remarry, we, because the law has died, are free to be in union with Christ. He doesn't say that the law has died. He says that we have died to the law. Already, he's preserving this idea that the law isn't what it seems to be to the sinner, that the law is, in fact, good and holy and righteous and all of those things. Don't think badly of the law just because the law reveals your own badness. But having said that, Paul's point here in speaking to the law is exactly to reveal kind of the downside. Like there are a lot of good things we can say about the law and should say about the law, but what Paul wants us to understand about the law is the part that isn't good. 
the detrimental effect of the law. Because the law, although it is not sin, it reveals sin. The law is how we come to our knowledge of sin. Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. It was the law that revealed to him his sinfulness. That's the problem. The law is a teacher. The law is a perfect teacher. But what does a perfect teacher teach imperfect students? It teaches them their imperfection. Exposure to that holy standard becomes an education in our own unholiness. There's a scene in one of the adaptations of the King Arthur story where Guinevere, after her affair with Lancelot, uh, after she has renounced him and gone into a nunnery, has a conversation with King Arthur years later. And not as an excuse, not to, to, to excuse what she did, but as a kind of reflection, she says to him, one cannot gaze too long at the sun. Why was I unfaithful? Why couldn't I keep my vows to you? Essentially, because you're just too good. Living with you was, was tough because you're perfect. I mean, you're King Arthur. How could a normal person measure up? Having the law as your teacher can be like that because the law reveals to you your inadequacy, your imperfection. It brings you to a knowledge of your own sin. It shows you how bad you really are. Paul gives us an example. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. He doesn't mean that he ever coveted before he read the Ten Commandments. He did. He just didn't know that's what it was. He didn't know there was anything wrong with it. I would not have known that that was sinful if the law had not said you shall not do it. But sin, he says, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, all kinds of wrong desires. Romans 6.12, Paul told us that we should not let sin reign in our mortal bodies to make us obey its passions. If you recall that, the word for passions in the Greek is epithemia. Epithemia refers to forbidden desire, yearnings, longings, cravings, lusts that proceed out of corrupted human nature. Epithemia is this catch-all term to describe those things. It is epithemia that Paul is talking about in Galatians 5 when he lists the works of the flesh all of the, the carnal actions that are inconsistent with our identity in Christ. If we surrender ourselves to these epithemia, these wrong desires, we are living in the flesh, and that's antithetical to life in the spirit. But here's where that gets interesting. Ask yourself, why of all the Ten Commandments is the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, the one that Paul quotes here? Why is that the one that he quotes to make his point? There are other possibilities. He could have said, I did not know what it was to murder until the law said you shall not murder. I did not know what it was to commit adultery until the law said this. I did not know what it was to steal or bear false witness against my neighbor until the law said you shall not do this. Why coveting specifically? If you go back to Exodus 20, 
Verse 17, the Tenth Commandment reads in full, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That's how it reads in the English. But if you went back and you read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what the apostles often quote from in the New Testament. Uh, The New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, Quotations from the Old Testament often reflect that earlier Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. If you read the Ten Commandments in the Greek, when you got to number 10, you would find the Tenth Commandment reads, Uk Epithemeus, which should sound familiar. It's exactly the words that in this text Paul uses when he quotes, uh, don't have wrong desire. Don't have wrong desire would be a, a, a less fluent but equally accurate way of translating this idea. You shall not covet. Don't surrender to your epithemia. Don't surrender to the corrupted desires of your fallen heart. In other words, don't want what you shouldn't want is the gist of the commandment. If you think about it that way, that's a pretty tough commandment to get around. Don't want what you shouldn't want. The way that a self-righteous person justifies themselves is by looking at the, the external demands of the law the fact that they haven't murdered anyone, they haven't committed adultery, they haven't gone to court and lied about their neighbor, and therefore they are good people, they are righteous people. But if the 10th commandment says, don't want what you shouldn't want, it doesn't say, don't act on your corrupted desires, it's more like don't have them. You start thinking, well, well, Lord, that raises the bar a little too high, because no one can possibly keep such a commandment you can begin to understand why this is the commandment that he cites. Because this this question of wrong desire, corrupted nature, is at the heart of what Paul is telling us about our sin. The law condemns us even in our wanting. How in the world can we measure up? If even the desire is sinful, then how in the world can we be righteous? One theologian says the 10th commandment is more searching and productive of the consciousness of sin than either the 6th, 7th, or 8th because it goes behind the outward act to the secret and inward desire. It reveals to us the depth of our corruption. That Paul can say, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin is devoid of life. It's dormant. It's latent. We have no consciousness of it. He's speaking subjectively here, not objectively. He doesn't mean sin doesn't exist until the law comes in. Yes, you can be a sinner without the law. What comes to life is your consciousness of sin. doesn't mean that without the law there would be no sin, but rather without the law there is no consciousness of sin. There is no measurement of sinfulness. Our sense of guilt lies dormant. The law brings knowledge of sin, 
And knowledge of sin means conviction, guilt, the sense of inadequacy. I was once alive apart from the law, he says. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. With no knowledge of the law, the unbelieving sinner lives without any sense of guilt. No sense of cosmic guilt before God. But when he hears the commandment, that consciousness of sin awakens. It kills the life of ease. It kills the life of complacency. The law does promise life, but it promises life to the righteous, which means that to the unrighteous, the more acquainted you are with the law, the more it sounds like a death sentence, which explains the life and death language that Paul uses here. But it's not just that the law, the commandment, brings greater consciousness of sin. It does more than that, actually. Remember, last time, Paul said that that sin is aroused by the law, that it is stirred up by the law. It's not just consciousness of sin, knowledge of sin. It's actually the desire to sin more in reaction. So we come to fathom our unrighteousness. We become deceived. We imagine ourselves more righteous than we are, and sometimes seeing our unrighteousness, think, well, if I'm unrighteous, I might as well lean into it. So sin not only is revealed by the law, but in this weird, perverse way, encouraged by it. We want to disobey. There's a pleasure in disobedience. If it weren't for that, if it weren't for our corrupted desires, the way the law might work is something like this. You live the life that seems right to you, even though some of the things you do are wrong, they violate God's command, but you didn't know that. You sinned in ignorance. And then the law comes along, and it is revealed to you that what you did was wrong. The commandment is declared. You receive knowledge of your sin. You feel remorse. And now you understand the difference between right and wrong. And armed with that knowledge, you resolve to live a life of obedience, and you do. The law has told you you were wrong, so you stopped being wrong, and now you can live as a good person. You feel good because now you're on the right path. And it would be that way if it weren't for our corrupted desires. Instead, what happens is more like this. The command is declared. We feel guilt. We understand the difference between right and wrong. We resolve to do better, but we don't. Instead, it's as if our desires are awakened. And rather than being contained, they, they, they leak out. We become more sinful, not less, and then more conscious of our guilt. Now we feel worse than ever. We see ourselves not only adrift on a sea of sin, but moving farther and farther from the standard of the law, not closer. We're seduced by sin, pulled deeper into condemnation, And during moments of clarity, all we really get from the law is the knowledge of how hopeless our situation is, how unholy we really are. It becomes a kind of death. When the criminal underworld 
finally captures the, the child murderer in Fritz Lang's movie. They bring him into a courtroom and they put him on trial. It's interesting that that's what they do, because if we were telling the story these days, we probably wouldn't go through the procedural motions of the trial. The criminals find the killer. They kill him. That's what criminals do. And the audience cheers because we know it's wrong to murder, but it's okay to murder people who are bad. And it's cathartic to watch it happen on screen. But we are denied that catharsis in M. Because something happens that's really surprising and unexpected. Something that if I had told you at the beginning of the movie this would take place, you would have had a hard time believing it. The monster speaks up for himself. He owns his crimes. He knows he's a monster. He knows what he did is wrong. He did it out of corrupted desire. He doesn't want to be the way he is. He hates the way that he is. But he can't help himself. He's compelled to do it. And as he pleads for his life in their presence, the unexpected thing that happens is you feel for him. You sympathize with the monster who's done unimaginable things, but now is making a case that resonates with sinners. Because all of us know what it's like to be compelled to do what we don't want to do, to feel remorse for our actions. I didn't want to do this. It wasn't me. It was, it was something in me that I can't always control. Sometimes I don't do the right thing. I do the wrong thing, and, and I, don't, I don't want to face the consequences of that, but what can I do? I'm helpless in the grip of these corrupted passions. The knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin in a monster can breed sympathy because we recognize that we may be far from righteous, but we're not that far from that. That we can relate to. Perfection, no. Can't imagine perfection. That that I can imagine. As we say sometimes there, but for the grace of God, go I. The knowledge of sin opens a door, though. The knowledge of sin reveals the need for Christ. If you go to Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And if you look at that passage, what Jesus does there is kind of, honestly, it's kind of disheartening. It would certainly be disheartening if you, like the rich young ruler, were one of these people going around saying, I have kept the law from my youth. Because Jesus goes through the Ten Commandments and starts making them harder. He's like the teacher who gives the quiz and then reveals the standard on which it will be graded. And Jesus goes through, if you follow him, you know, he says, uh, this is in Matthew 5, uh, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And to explain what he's getting at here, he starts talking about uh, murder. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He's not done. 
You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, you've heard it said, by those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. What Jesus is doing is what Paul does. Jesus is demonstrating that you can't get around these commandments. Because it's not just the action, it's the desire. It's the desire. But if that's the case, what hope is there? What hope is there for any of us? Jesus is basically, like on the Sermon on the Mount, proclaiming this good news of hopelessness. Explaining to you that that none of you could possibly be righteous. None of you could possibly keep the law. And in Matthew 5, 48, he sums up this train of thought with these encouraging words. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody who took comfort from that was in denial. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So not just perfect by human standards, but by divine standards, you must be perfect. You're like, Jesus, tell us the good news. He already has. He gave us the good news when he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Sinners confronting the law, the good news we think would be good is to hear that the law has been abolished, erased, or at least the standards have been lowered a little bit. So at least, you know, the better among us can get over the line. But Jesus says, no, I haven't come to do that. I haven't come to diminish the law. I haven't come to make it easier for you to be good or good enough. I haven't come to do away with the harder parts of the law. I've come to fulfill it. The good news that this opens up to us, what Jesus is saying to us is not keep the law. He knows you can't keep the law. He knows that if you try like Paul did, before his conversion to be righteous through law-keeping, that you will end up hopeless. You will recognize the impossibility of doing it. You will believe there is no hope. What Jesus says, there is hope. There is hope. I haven't come to abolish the law so that you don't have to keep it. I've come to fulfill it. In other words, I've come to keep it for you. The standard of perfection hasn't been abolished. It has been kept by Christ. And the good news is that all the hopelessness that the knowledge of the law induces leads us to the hope of life in Christ. That what you could not do through obedience, what you could not do by being good, what you could not do by suppressing your wrong desires you can receive by believing in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You cannot keep the law, Jesus says, but do not fear, I have kept it for you. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. 
We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.